Well, in the uh, movie Elf, Jovi, a single girl in New York City, takes a job to make it through the holiday season. You guys are familiar with the movie. Uh, her work is a grind until she meets Buddy the Elf. Buddy the Elf. And joy is infused into her joyless life through the childlike fun of being with this guy named Buddy. And it coupled with a little bit of romance, too. This is about the best the world has to offer when it comes to finding joy and meaning in life. Have fun and enjoy some romance. And they aren't entirely wrong. There certainly is joy in looking at and appreciating the little things in life and seeing the joy of romantic love. But these joys are not what we would call chief joys. They are not the origin of joys that endure. These joys simply reflect a deeper and better joy. They indeed are glorious gifts, but the glorious giver of all is God. For our highest joy, we need to learn to be in awe of the glory of God. Paul was, Peter was, Jude was, Moses was, the rest of the Old Testament prophets were, and that's because God made us to find our highest satisfaction in knowing, worshiping, and glorifying God. You guys are in Romans chapter 11. We are going to look at just the last verse. I want you to read that with me, and then I'm going to have you turn back earlier in Romans. So Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see an important connection that Paul makes here. Not just in glorifying God, as he does at the end of Romans 11, but in connecting our joy with God's glory. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 2. The end of that verse says, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Of God. The beginning of verse 5 says, And this hope of the glory of God does not put us to shame. You could even translate that putting to shame as does not disappoint. You see, we are not disappointed with the hope of God's glory. We're not disappointed when we find our greatest joy and satisfaction in knowing and worshiping God. We are not disappointed when we live for the glory of God. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 31, right? Whether I eat, whether I drink, whatever I do, I do all for the glory of God. That's why the Catechism for Christian Growth that we just say begins in the same way that the Westminster Catechism begins, begins the same way that the Historic Baptist Catechism begins, begins the same way that Spurgeon's Catechism begins, and it all begins with the same question, what is the chief purpose of humanity? Answer, to glorify and enjoy God forever. See, many in the world would answer that question, what's the chief purpose of humanity? To pursue personal happiness. Our country is kind of founded on that, right? Pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. But when we pursue what we think will make us happy, apart from the glory and enjoyment of God, there's going to be two typical problems. First, we get lost in a labyrinth of subjectivity. We get lost in a labyrinth of subjectivity. See, what satisfies us one day becomes meaningless the next. And we are so often disappointed with the big hopes and joys that we're looking forward to. It's why we live in a divorce culture, because we've bought into the lie that happiness is that loving feeling. And when it subjectively starts to wane and starts to flow away, and and many look at that and say, you know what? The best thing for me to do is just to leave. 
You see, without rooting our joy in knowing our glorious God and having a restored relationship with God, personal happiness is hopelessly subjective and thus fleeting. So the first problem with this pursuit of personal happiness is it's subjective. Second problem, if we pursue happiness on our own terms, we become very selfish people. If living for the honor of God is minimized, if he is not our highest delight, then our desires become supreme. And selfishness, like a ravenous monster, consumes all good delights for our own purposes. I want to look at these images. I need that stuff. I want to take vengeance on my own terms. See, if the pursuit of happiness is devoid of living for the glory of God, then we will get lost in selfish subjectivity. And clouds of despair often follow. So look at Romans 5 again with me. And I want you to note how closely our joy, our hope, and knowing the glory of God is tied to God's work in saving us. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this speaks to the reality that we were enemies of God by nature. Therefore, what happens when we become Christians is that we have been made peace with God. And we have been justified or declared to be right before God. He continues, verse 2, Through him we also have obtained access by faith that is access to God, into this grace, this gift that we don't deserve, in which we continually stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, we can stand in the very presence of God, the one who fashioned the universe. We can live exactly how we were designed to live and enjoy the glory of the only God because we rejoice in the hope that he is glorified above all else. So that is why the angel in Luke 2, as he announces the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, says very familiar words to us. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And when the multitude of heavenly hosts arrive, they praise God and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, good will toward men. The good tidings of great joy is the hope of salvation that comes only in Jesus Christ. And this amazing rescue plan for enemies, for, for those so prone to live for selfish, subjective, and fleeting happiness brings God glory and praise, and then it brings us eternal joy. That's what Christmas is all about. It's God's glory and our joy. God's glory and our joy are like twin pistons working in tandem, firing to move each other. A passion for God's glory energizes our joy, and as we enjoy God, we pursue his glory, and so on, back and forth. So as we finish up Romans 11 this morning, we're going to focus on three reasons to glory in God and thus recapture joy. Three glorious realities of God that fuel our joy. If your periods of joy in God feel distant, rare, dim, gone altogether, then maybe you need to consider that perhaps you're living for selfish 
and subjective happiness. But what you really need to do to recapture genuine, pervasive joy isn't to get the next greatest thing, but to recapture a vision for God so we can rejoice in every situation, so that we can hope in his glory. So today we'll be focused on beholding the glory of God so that we can understand the good tidings of great joy that are ours in Christ. The first reason to glory in God is, number one, God starts everything. He is the source. God starts everything. He is the source. Now, we live in Detroit, and so you're probably familiar with Henry Ford. Now, he didn't invent the car, but he did invent how to make it economically viable. From improving the assembly line to building massive power, power plants to designing car features that helped turn the car into what we know it today, Henry Ford is definitely the father of the automobile industry. And if you doubt his ongoing legacy, just go down to Dearborn and see how many buildings has his name blazoned on it. Or visit Ford Field to watch the Lions play. Or visit a Henry Ford hospital system. We get that there's an appropriate amount of honor, respect due to someone who starts something big, something important. And so the scriptures instruct us to honor God because he is the creator of everything. He's the source of everything. Romans 11 verse 36, our our verse this morning is what is called a doxology. It is a concluding praise for Romans 9 through 11, as we learn to live with the tensions that he presents in these last three chapters. We certainly read a lot about God's sovereignty over salvation, and then we also read about man's responsibility to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. And so as Paul has repeatedly encouraged us to really let God be God and to give him praise that is due his name, So he gives us a final few words of doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And as Romans 5 says, we rejoice in the certain hope of getting to see the glory of God forever and ever. But before Paul concludes with giving glory to God, he gives us three reasons that we should glory in God. And the first is found right at the beginning of verse 36, isn't it? For from him are all things. For from him are all things. Paul's argument is clear. God started everything. He's the source of all creation. Therefore, all glory goes to him forever. Now, there are three other passages that I want you to kind of earmark in your New Testament that we're going to turn to a couple of times here. So the first one is 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Keep your bulletin or something in, in Romans 11. We'll get back there. But 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And you can keep something here, too, because we'll, we'll look at this passage again. Specifically in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, the focus is on God the Father, as the origin of life, as the member of the Trinity sometimes describes as the fountainhead of creation. So, so read 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 with me. He says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. This is why the creeds say that God the Father is maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. But we also see heaven and earth were made through Jesus Christ. And that's what the verse continues to say. And we also believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So you see here a a, a relation between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father creates the whole world through God the Son. No tiny particle, no massive galaxy escapes the fatherly care of God nor the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. 
for the triune God made everything that is. And so he says very clearly to us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, a second important verse that exalts Jesus as glorious creator is Colossians chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We're going to be turning around in the Bible this morning. We only have one verse in Romans, and you guys probably have that memorized, so we're going to be looking all around. And so Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. A couple of books to your right. Now... How many of you guys have had uh, Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door? All right, I think, I think most of us have. And Jehovah's Witnesses come, and they are calling themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know if you know this, but Jehovah is basically the uh, Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. But it's been Germanized, and it's changed into a Germanized spelling of Yahweh, which is the Hebrew way to say it, into Jehovah. Okay, and so they call themselves by God's Old Testament name, and that's very important because they do not believe in anything close to a trinity. See, the important thing is that Jesus is not God according to Jehovah's Witness, and they'll be ready to tell you about that. In fact, they tell you that he's an angel. He's probably the same angel named Michael, Michael the Archangel. They kind of say he has two names. They repeatedly and clearly deny the deity of Jesus, and, and they create then a false god that they worship. Because the Bible is clear, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to look at Colossians 1, and I want you to see if this jives with what the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to tell you. Colossians 1, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And those thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those are different words for angels. So it tells us that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one who created the angels. Therefore, he cannot be a what? Angel. Then he says, the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. And if there was still any doubt, Paul further clarifies verse 19, for in Jesus, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So clearly Jesus is the creator God, worthy of praise. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. This is that third passage you kind of will look at these three passages we'll flip back and forth to hebrews chapter one it further clarifies romans 11 again the emphasis is clear god the father created the world through god the son so he says verse one hebrews one verse one long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, he is God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his So as we consider how to understand that God is the origin of life, as we consider that Jesus himself made everything that we see, sustains everything that we see, as we consider that God, the Holy Spirit, is involved in this as well, as we'll talk about in a second, I want you to think with me about how this should apply to our lives from Psalm verse 33, chapter 33. Psalm 33. Go ahead and turn there. Psalm 33. Told you you should uh, oil up the spines of your Bible. We're, we're turning a lot. We're looking a lot. Psalm chapter 33. See, the Bible tells us that God the Father, God the Son, are both responsible for creation. We've said that, seen that multiple times. 
And in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see also that God, the Holy Spirit, is hovering over the face of the waters, superintending and causing all of this to become what it is. He gives breath to life uh, of life to Adam and Eve. The Spirit does. And so creation is an act of a glorious triune God, which means our hearts should overflow with various expressions of praise to the triune God. But practically, what does this look like? For this, let's enter Psalm 33. It's a beautiful depiction of praise to God as creator. Start with verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath, or by the Holy Spirit, of his mouth, all their hosts. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. I mean, there's no way that any of us could measure the waters of the ocean, and yet God says, it says that God has waters of the ocean, waters of the earth in storehouses. He is that big. He continues, verse 8. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Verse 13 through 15, continue. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out and all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. No one hides from the creator God. No one looks and says, God cannot see me. So what is our only response? We actually get this in verse 1. 33 verse 1. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. The only fitting response is one of joyful worship of the one true God. He continues, verse 2, give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of ten strings, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So we are commanded to joyfully worship God, but you guys live in the real world. I live in the real world. And you need to wonder sometimes, what happens when I don't feel happy? When I don't feel like shouting and praising and celebrating God? What happens when you're suddenly in the hospital unexpectedly? What happens when you can't seem to make ends meet financially? Well, Psalm 33 concludes with these words. Go to verse 20. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast, faithful love, O Yahweh, be upon us, even as we hope in you. O oh, beloved, our hope is in the glory of God. We wait on him, and we are glad to do so. God is our certain hope. He made us. He sits enthroned above it all. As Romans eleven thirty six says, from him are all things. For our last point of application, go, go to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, verse 12. So far, we have two points of application. One, joyfully worship God. Number two, lean on him with a settled trust. Even when things get dark and cloudy. But there's a third application that we see in Isaiah when we remember that God starts everything. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, 
whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens when I called to them. They stand forth all together. So assemble all of you and listen. So what's our application? Listen to God. God himself tells us that we must listen because he is creator, which makes perfect sense for the one who designed us desires to speak to us, to tell us how to live, to tell us how to think, to tell us what is right, to tell us what is wrong, shouldn't we listen? Does he not have the ability to tell us how everything works best? So why do we live as if we're deaf to God? Why do we read his word only when it's convenient? And even then with an eye on our phone. See, part of recapturing the joy of life is to praise the triune God for for making us, trusting him that he knows best, and then doing all we can to listen, to put ourselves in the way of truth. We are men and women of the word. And when we are exposing ourselves to God's word, that should percolate into our minds and souls and help us to orient our lives towards joyful satisfaction in the glory of God. Well, there's a second reason to glory in God. First, God starts everything. He is a source. Second reason, God sustains everything. He's sovereign. And go back to Romans chapter 11. God sustains everything. Studying how things work is truly incredible. And most of us, frankly, barely get past an elementary level of an understanding of how this world works. We don't actually understand how trees take sunlight and water and CO2 and help them grow. I mean, some of you do, but most of us don't. We don't truly understand how cellular or even harder molecular biology works or the role that genetics plays in our health. We don't actually understand how how gravity works. It just does. We don't understand how the moon controls ocean tides, but we hear that it supposedly does. And frankly, we don't have to know how all these things work. We just take these things for granted. But, but maybe, maybe we should go back to high school and college science classes a little bit more and reintroduce a sense of wonder and amazement about how this world works, about how this world is sustained. And then we might be able to better catch a glimpse of the glory of God in sustaining creation. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, for from him are all things, but also says, and through him, through him are all things. Literally everything continues to exist because it's held together through God's power. Listen, laws of nature are not impersonal forces that somehow affect us. They were created and even now are sustained by an omnipotent hand. Go to Colossians 1, 16 and 17 again. He says very clearly, in the middle of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And get this, the middle of verse 17 here, in him, that is in Jesus, all things hold together. Literally, everything is held together because Christ holds it together. Hebrews chapter 1, it says basically the same thing. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
You know, when I think of the incarnation of God taking on flesh as a baby, one of my favorite devotional thoughts that kind of fills me with wonder and like, I don't even get how this can be, but the very moment the baby Jesus is sleeping in the arms of his mother, he is holding her body together. I mean, that's so incredible, isn't it? And the song we just sung, put it another way, that that song God Made Low, listen to this verse. It says, as he sleeps upon the hay, he holds the moon and stars in place. Though born an infant, he remains the sovereign God of endless days. Emmanuel, meaning God with us, sustainer and sovereign over everyone and everything. So not only should we come and worship the sustainer of life, but but this humbles you, doesn't it? It makes you realize moment by moment, I need thee every hour. You know, that's really why we're commanded to pray without what? Pray without ceasing. We do that, not because it's some sort of intellectual exercise and monkery, We do that because we realize we depend on God every single moment. To help us remember what happens when we think that we don't need God, we have Daniel chapter 4. I'll summarize the story for you. In this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar is gloating over the splendor of Babylon, and he says, this is sustained and reflects the glory of my majesty. And at that very moment, according to the prophecy that uh, Daniel had said, the Lord strikes Nebuchadnezzar so that he begins to act like a wild animal. His nails become like bird's claw, his hair as long as eagle's feathers, and he eats grass like an ox. And it isn't until he recognizes God as the Lord over all that his reason returns. And Nebuchadnezzar then proclaims in verse 35, God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. It's a radical different approach than, wow, this is awesome, look at my glory. You see, the wealthiest, the most powerful men in the world need God every bit as much as the poorest widow because God sustains life on his terms. God sovereignly moves in life wherever God pleases. So how many of you expressed dependence on God this last week? If we were given a moment-by-moment peek into your thought life and we were to replay that thought life this last week, could anyone see that you think God is the sustainer of your life? Or was God barely an afterthought? Did you pray rarely, if at all? Do you live like you control your own destiny? Are you confident that you have all the answers, the the corner on wisdom for what's best for your life? Or is there meaningful, regular dependence on God? Maybe your prayers are simply complaints about how no one seems to get how good and beautiful you are. Maybe there's something like this, God, please help everyone else to love me as much as I know I deserve to be loved. I mean, you don't actually say that, but that's the gist of it. I pray that God doesn't have to humble you like Nebuchadnezzar to wake you up to your daily need for him to sustain everything in your life. So the second reason we glory in God is that he sustains everything. He's sovereign. And last, our third reason to glory in God, number three, God is the goal of everything. He is all satisfying. Go and go back to Romans chapter 11. 
Well, a race without a finish line is simply wandering. A game without an objective is a waste of time. Perhaps worse is playing a game with the wrong objective. Golf, for example, is already excruciatingly slow to watch. Imagine if someone taught, thought that the objective was to get as close to 100 strokes per hole as possible. I mean, how much fun would that be? There he goes, you got a five-footer, another seven-foot, another six-foot. So it is with our life. When we have the wrong goal, when we think the goal of life is to be happy on our terms, chance, maybe you're a little bit older now, and you're raising successful, confident kids, and that's your most important part, it doesn't matter if they faithfully worship Christ. You see, when we have the wrong goal in mind, we'll never get to where we're going. Beloved, the goal of life is the glory of God, and he is perfectly and always satisfying. Andrew Nassali writes this, the point of everything is God. God made us for himself. Everything that is not God exists to point to God to highlight God, to magnify God, to exalt God, to make much of God. God is the supreme treasure and supreme pleasure of all life. And so as we return to Romans 11, we see the final element and reason why we glory in God. For to him are all things. It's a very simple concept, but one that changes everything. I mean, think of it like this. The goal of your salvation is not so that you can be saved. The goal of your salvation is the glory of God. The goal of you having children is not to fulfill your life. It's to give glory to God. The goal of you not having children is to give glory to God. The goal of your successes and failures in life is the glory of God. Everything in life can be understood to reveal God's glory. Yes, even trials and the hardening of a sinner's heart. We see the same thing again in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Turn there if you want, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. You see that? For God, we exist. And he continues, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We exist for God. Colossians 1.16. Turn there. Same thing. The end of verse 16 says, All things were created through Jesus and what? For Jesus. I mean, that means everything, right? This is not some partial amount of things. Everything is created for God and for giving God the glory. But some then look at statements like this and they begin to ask some weird questions and they say, does this make God some sort of egomaniac? Perhaps God is into some cosmic self-flattery. If he is, how can God still then be good and trustworthy? Isn't pride, egomania, and a desire for flattery inherently wicked? Well, it certainly is for us. But for God, a desire for his glory in all things is inherently good, beautiful, and true. Why? And there's three simple reasons, all right? I'll give these to you here. Number one, God's passion for his glory is not the same as self-flattery because it doesn't arise out of weakness and deficiency. You know, when I am uh, maybe had a struggle a couple of days and I... Uh, talk to my wife and I say, 
You know, I did a really good job by putting up the Christmas lights, didn't I? You know, well, what am I doing? I'm fishing for some compliments, right? And what does that happen? It comes out of me realizing how far I fall short of perfection. Listen to Acts 17, verse 24 and 25. There's nothing deficient in God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by a man or is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, he created everything. He has everything. He sustains everything. He knows all things. So praise and glory are his right. They're not flattery. Which actually leads to reason number two, why this is not some sort of sinful, bad flattery. Number two, God's name deserves to be glorified. So it's first not flattery because it doesn't arise out of weakness in God. Second, his name actually deserves to be glorified. Our objection to self-aggrandizement stems from the fact that extolling our own virtues strikes us as incongruous with our true merit. But God is always worthy of glory. He is worthy of every life lived to worship and enjoy him. This isn't self-aggrandizement. This is worthy aggrandizement. And there's a third reason God is not wrong to create all things to give him glory. Number three, glorifying God is for our good. Glorifying God is for our good. You see, God's glory and his love are not at odds. God's desire to be glorified is not opposed to his desire for our joy. Listen, we don't want our kids to grow up thinking their greatest joy is found in watching football or hosting backyard barbecues or volunteering to serve in your community or just being good people or keeping an immaculate home or or playing video games or whatever. We teach our kids the pinnacle of satisfaction by what they observe us doing and uh, purposing in our lives. Do they see you aiming to glorify God? Listen, God can't be selfish if his glory is our greatest good. We are most satisfied when we glory in God. And so we are not shocked to find the Bible full of references to great joy that comes when we glorify him. I want you to turn to the Psalms again. Go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. As you're turning there, listen to a number of the other Psalms that speak to the same truth. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore happen when we come to God. Another, Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not as a genie, but because when you delight in God, your highest desire is to glorify him. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 43, verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Now you're in Psalm 63. Read with me, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So if God's glory is both the goal of life and our highest joy, we see some simple applications in Psalm 63. The first part of the psalm, the application is this. You should seek God in everyday, normal life. Seek God in everyday, normal life and in everyday, normal ways. It means you're devoted to prayer. You're devoted to reading the scripture. You're devoted to coming together for corporate worship. You're devoted to do these things with earnest. What does he say in verse one, right? I earnestly seek you. What's that earnestness? That means that we are to pursue God with sobriety, with focused attention in the normal ways and of a, as a highest priority, not, not just when it's convenient. Well, second of a point of application, you should seek God in the darkness of night. You seek God in the normal ways and you seek God in the darkness of night. Look at verse five. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Night here is a metaphor for trials, for difficult times. You get the picture of someone who's sleepless, whose anxieties about different things are threatening to even take away their ability to rest. And what does he do? His mouth will praise you with joyful lips. We still must come to God and find hope in his creating and sustaining power. And so even in the difficulties, there is joy on our lips as we find refuge. And what does he say in verse 7? In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Right? So life seems dark until we realize the shadow of God's wings are there to protect us. And so we sing for joy. We rejoice in knowing him. That's because his glory is always the goal of all of life. How do you have such strange joy? Glory in God. So are you pursuing counterfeit joys with all your might? Are you looking for hope, happiness, significance, and security anywhere else but God? Then you're pursuing an idol. You're like T.S. Eliot's hollow men and hollow women, scarecrows dancing, only if a passing breeze catches you just right. We become like the idols we serve. Listen to how Psalm 115 describes idol worshipers. Psalm 115.4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not spell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. So why do we settle for hollow, fleeting joys? Why do we settle for significance and worldly pursuits. We were made for so much more. So perhaps we should say with Isaac Watts, Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small 
love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. As Romans eleven thirty six concludes, we read a few short, simple words. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And the final word, amen, isn't just a weird word to end prayers. It has meaning, doesn't it? It means so be it or let it be. It's a word of surrender. It's a word of humility. It's a word of willingness to live for the glory of God and not for the glory of self. It's a word that recognizes Isaiah 46, 9. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And it's this humble surrender, this recognition that God's ways and his glory are for my good that moves us always back to the cross. Remember what Paul wrote of our joy and the glory of God from Romans 5? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So with communion, we stand humbled at the glories of God that are granted to us in spite of us. And we take refuge in his grace. And we humbly say, amen, let it be. That he must increase and we must decrease. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this chance that we've had to study your glorious truth that you created us to find our highest joy in serving and glorifying you. Lord, may we not treat you as some sort of secondary, occasionally interesting uh, pursuit, but that you would be the goal of our life, that you would help us to reflect on our hearts and in our lives and in our prayers a continual trust and need for you to sustain us and that you would help us to worship, to listen, to pursue you no matter what because you created us. You know what's best for us. Help us to honor you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.